name is Arijit Banerjee and I'm the Vice Chair of the IEEE Power Electronics Society Digital Media and Education Committee and a faculty member at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. With me, I have my colleague, Dr. Kristen Booth. Hi, I'm Kristen, also a member of the Digital Media and Education Committee and an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina. And today we are having a conversation with a very special guest, Professor Ned Mohan. He's the Oscar A. Scott Professor of Power Electronics and Systems at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Professor Mohan. Thanks so much for joining us in this podcast. We are so excited to have you here and talk about research, teaching, and some philosophical aspects of our profession. Yeah, thank you. So we have had a few uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison graduates on our podcast. So tell us about your time there, Professor Mohan. Okay, first of all, uh, thank you very much, uh, Arijit and Kristen, to, to invite me for this podcast. I think what you're doing would be very consequential for uh, young students as well as working professionals uh, in our area. So I really appreciate that uh, being included and thank you, Megan, to make this possible from the IEEE. So my time at Wisconsin, uh, you know, that was uh, kind of, uh, uh, I would say the perhaps the best time in my life, okay? I was carefree, I was having fun, and I was also learning something. So, and I met my wife uh, there, or future wife, it was not, she was not my wife at that time, uh, this young lady, and uh, we just uh, celebrated our 48th uh, uh, wedding anniversary. So, it was a very fruitful time for me, and uh, uh, I had very good mentors, and uh, Professor uh, Harold Peterson and Roger Booth, who kind of took care of me and uh, kept me in line, so to speak. And uh, so I had a lot of fun and I still have uh, friends there. And in fact, uh, one of our recent PhDs, uh, Eric Severson, he is an assistant professor at UW-Madison. And uh, my daughter works for UW-Madison. So <laughs> I can't say enough about uh, my time at uh, UW. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you have quite a tie there. Um, and it seems like you said you mentioned that you really like the the learning aspect of being there. And so I really wanted to bring up this one uh, side topic. You took a bit of a divergent path and then ended up receiving a master's in nuclear engineering. Can you tell us how you got to that point and, and decided to take that extra degree? Sure, sure. So, Kristen, I, I hope it's OK. I call both of you by your first names here. Oh, of course. Uh, we are friends. Uh, so, uh, you know, as you know, when you are doing your PhD, uh, you have to take a few courses outside your department. So I decided to take a course on nuclear engineering, which I, I found to be very fascinating. So I said, okay, let me just uh, pursue this path as well on the side. I never thought that I'll switch over to nuclear. And I'm glad I didn't, otherwise I'll be maybe unemployed today, I don't know, okay? Because nuclear had its uh, downturn and still uh, is uh, in a down position in some sense. But uh, so I found that to be very interesting. So I continued and got a master's uh, in it. And I had another interest in following nuclear because I'm from India and India has large, large deposits of thorium. So I thought that, you know, maybe someday we may switch over from uh, uranium to thorium, but uh, that never happened. Research is still going on. 
but I think the chances of that happening are pretty slim. But nuclear is still a very uh, viable and perhaps a critical option if you're going to go towards 100% carbon-free electricity. Because as uh, Bill Gates points out in his book, How to Avoid Climate Disaster, you know, we have this 24-7 society, and then we have this, uh, these renewables. Uh, they, they are variable, they are seasonable. Uh, you know, so you know, nuclear uh, probably should or could be uh, an option. So that was my interest. And uh, so I'm glad uh, that I, I went that way, Kristen. And uh, hopefully uh, that I also could reflect uh, in my courses that I teach. That's very interesting, Professor Mohan. And uh, I'll go a little bit off track here. Since you talked about India, you talked about uh, a lot of thorium there. And I know you did your undergraduate from IIT Kharagpur. Right. How, how was the change? How was it different to be uh, studying in India to undergraduates and then back to uh, UW Madison for your PhD? Yeah, yeah well, you know, c- coming from a small town in India, uh, and, and growing up there and then going to IIT Kharagpur, uh, which was, you know, uh, about six, 700 miles away. Uh, so I graduated in 67, but I wanted to pursue higher studies. And uh, uh, my parents were somewhat reluctant uh, for me to leave, but I did. Uh, so I'm very thankful that they allowed me to leave. And uh, so I ended up uh, in 67 at uh, University of New Brunswick uh, in Canada. In New Brunswick, Canada, and I did my master's. And while doing it, my master's, I got an RA ship offer from University of British Columbia. But I happened to visit my cousin here in Milwaukee, who said, take my car and go to Madison. So when I went to Madison, I kind of fell in love with Madison, <laughs> all the excitement that was there. This was, you know, end of uh, 69 and uh, early 70s. So so I, you know, I ended up there and uh, I had a great time. I had a great mentor, as I said, Professor Harold Peterson and uh, Roger Bloom, a lot of friends, a lot of uh, fun activities, but uh, I, I hope I learned something. <laughs> I think I did. But so I really am very kind of uh, look at uh, UW Madison with a rose colored glasses, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. So on that topic, your dissertation was on uh, superconductive energy storage inductors for power systems. So again, going back to our audiences, many of our audience right now are students and they are going through their PhD probably. Uh, What was the most challenging part of the thesis? Were you ever worried about any hypothesis which you had to spend a lot of time investigating? Well, uh, you know, uh, my professor, advisor, uh, and Roger Bloom, Professor Roger Bloom, they had gotten a grant. Uh, I forget it was from, I think it was from DOE to study the superconductive energy storage for power systems. So naturally, you know, I was recruited as a, a student uh, to work on it. There were other people working on other aspects because the superconductivity is not really my field as such, but I was looking at how this storage can help uh, you know, power systems in terms of frequency regulation and things like that. So, you know, I was uh, pretty well directed and I don't think I was under any anxiety. I used uh, uh, this uh, hybrid computer, which uh, many of you young people probably have never heard of it. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it, but never 
touched it, uh, maybe it doesn't exist, I don't know, uh, in that form where, you know, part of the system you emulate uh, in, uh, in analog and then the logic and everything is in a digital computer. But then this digital computer age, that has uh, just totally disappeared to my knowledge. So they, they were, you know, I had a very good guide and it uh, all seemed to have worked out. And it turns out that storage, if you look today, in the, in the days of uh, renewables that we are thinking of, uh, that's really a missing link, right? Uh, the reason why superconductive energy storage uh, for power systems uh, uh, didn't make sense and does not make sense is because of the, the reasons other than what I was studying, you know, because of the structure that you need to hold the forces and so forth. So, uh, so that's, uh, so again, I, I learned a lot. Power systems was for my main area of study at that time. Power electronics was not that uh, big uh, at that time. There was uh, I had never heard of switching power electronics, by the way. <laughs> okay, when I was studying, only after I came here, I came to know about that. So I also want to diverge a little bit here in terms of um, you just explained that you did all this work towards your your PhD, which you received. Um, but I think sometimes students have a really hard time to understand that even, you know, coming to a conclusion that the technology you've been developing maybe isn't the, the best for the application or um, maybe there's some cost and feasibility of, of adding it to a system. Um, it seems like you might have some some good experience to uh, lean back on to say, hey, failure is OK. It tells us what, you know it expands our knowledge base. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, well, I think uh, the failure, failure is the most uh, important teacher. Uh, I have a colleague here, uh, you know, he teaches a course uh, in our uh, Carlson School of uh, Business Management, learning from failure, okay? So more you fail, more you learn, I think. So- I agree. No, but I, I don't think I failed because, uh, yeah, I learned a lot, uh, although uh, this uh, superconductive energy storage is uh, useful for certain applications. So I think they use it in MRI machines and things like that, but uh, the superconductivity at least they use, but uh, the, you know, for power systems, uh, you know, they found out later on that, uh, it, you know, you can only put it uh, under bedrocks or something, you know, to hold those forces. So it doesn't make sense, right? It's very rational right. in that sense. So, and I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, Kristen. I was just gonna gonna make the statement of it's it's not necessarily a failure of the researcher. It's and it's not any sort of um, uh, you know, turn back on the person or the researcher itself studying it. It's really just like you said, a limitation of the technology. And sometimes we internalize that because we spend so much time. Um, devoted to these to our research projects that we it, we think in terms of it's a failure of our of our personality or ourself and it really is well beyond that that yeah I, I think Kristen you are absolutely right because I don't think of it as a failure at all and I don't even think of it as failure on the part of uh, my professors who started this project because this is, that's the nature of research right exactly. Right, you know, certain things span out and others don't. And uh, so, you know, think about all the things that we hear about breakthroughs and this and that, 
you know, that uh, ultra capacitors can hold charge to go from uh, Houston to Dallas and things like that. But, uh, you know, uh, that's the nature of research. That's uh, somewhat uh, op maybe optimistic, uh, but you have to be hopeful. So this always, always. Right, right. Yeah. So course on climate change, I teach. I, I teach it in a very hopeful manner because it's a very serious and uh, anxiety-provoking topic with what's happening mm -hmm. with climate. But I tell students, you know, what is happening is, uh, you know, we have to do the best we can uh, towards in terms of technology and uh, also uh, try to become an activist if you want to do something, right? Uh, go and protest uh, on St. Paul uh, Capitol or something, you know, but uh, be an activist uh, if you want to, if you want to. So. Yeah, and I think also that makes a point that sometimes some sometimes some technology is not right for that particular moment. Whatever was not true in 1967, energy storage probably now is absolutely we cannot think of anything else without energy storage right now. So, and uh, and some of the research on superconducting uh, uh, part of it is being done for electric aircraft propulsion. Who would have thought that that we would put superconducting machines in, in electric aircraft? Again, I, I totally agree with you in terms of having that hope and having that faith. Yeah, it may not be right away necessary or it may not be relevant right away, but who knows in next 20, 30 years, 50 years, that will be the most essential, important piece of the puzzle. Sure, sure. That's that's really the nature of research, Charajit, what you just said, you know, that uh, you can't just look at it uh, in a way that it will be applied uh, tomorrow. Uh, you have to think about uh, how uh, you are uh, developing the knowledge which could eventually be employed, you know, so. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I hate to pull us away from your from your great years at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but that's what I'm about to do next. Okay. Um, so now you have been at the University of Minnesota since your postdoc, which was also at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm assuming that you just couldn't get away. And, you know, I can see why based on what you've told us so far and the other stories we've heard in this podcast. Sure. Um, but what's caught your attention at the University of Minnesota and then kept you there for so long? Well, Tristan, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that uh, my wife, uh, you know, we were married at that time when I was postdoc. Uh, we didn't want to leave Madison. We loved Madison. Uh, we didn't think there was anything beyond the boundaries of medicine, but uh, you can't be postdoc all your life. So I had to look for a job. And uh, <clears throat> so I applied to academic positions and I got one offer from you know, California State Universities, you know, and the other one I got from uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, Professor Warren Albertson, he's the one who hired me. And uh, so I said, hey, Minnesota is not too far away from my wife's family in Wisconsin. So obviously it was uh, very high on our list. So we ended up here in uh, during the winter time. It was like 30 below, <laughs> 30 to 40 below is to get. Not anymore, not anymore, by the way. Climate change is real. So, uh, you know, I remember once walking home from work at midnight uh, with wind chill, it was 60 below. I didn't think I'll make it, okay. But I'm here and uh, this is my 45th year of teaching. Both my kids were born here and uh, and I have great colleagues here, great mentors here. Professor Vern Albertson, I mentioned, Professor Bruce Wallenberg and Professor Mahmoud Riaz. Uh, he was my mentor in uh, electric machines and drives. 
So the books I re- wrote, uh, you know, I really attribute to, for example, Professor Mahmoud Riyaz, because everything I was developing a new wave of teaching electric drives, uh, you know, more physics-based approach, and everything I presented to him, he said I was wrong. Well, <laughs> but in, after saying I was wrong, uh, he gave me the opportunity to prove that uh, I was not wrong. Sometimes I was, but sometimes I wasn't. So that's how it developed. So he was a great mentor and great friend. And uh, then I have some ju- junior colleagues here today and uh, who are great. And uh, so I get along. So we are a friend, very friendly department. We say hi to each other, at least. <laughs> no, no, more than that. We have a friendly department. So, uh, and Twin Cities used to be a very nice, uh, peaceful place. And uh, so I could go at midnight uh, downtown Minneapolis, no problem, right? Uh, so, so I have enjoyed my time here, and uh, who knows how long I'm here, but, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, my 45th year. I'm the second oldest person in my department. <laughs> I was the youngest when I was hired. That is so incredible. That is so incredible. And uh, just to touch on uh, Professor Riaz, I think, uh, I don't know if our listeners are aware of it, but uh, there is still, if you Google Professor Riaz's website, there are a lot of animations uh, on uh, different concepts and so on. And I use them uh, often in my class to teach some things where the animations make sense. And I'm really grateful for um, uh, to University of Minnesota to keep that website going. Uh, I don't know whether it's up somewhere, but if you Google it, you will find it. Yeah, you, you'll find it. You're absolutely right, Arjit. I use those animations too, because as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So to show, show that animation uh, before you start your lecture, so to speak, is uh, very, very instructive for students right away that uh, these magnets are rotating and you know, voltages and currents are being produced. So it's uh, it's very useful animations he has. Absolutely, I really love those animations. So again, going back to your statement that you have been here uh, at University of Minnesota for last 45 years, and you have worked on numerous projects and ideas, and I'm sure all were were very fascinating. So to to tell us, if you can tell us a couple of stories in terms of, can you briefly talk about one or two of those where you were like, ah, this is so elegant solution of this challenge or this problem and your Eureka moment, if I will. So, you know, what I would say, Arjit, that I have been uh, very fortunate uh, to have uh, 50 PhD students uh, as of now who graduated and all of them uh, have done something unique. So what uh, it's not what I have done, but it's really what we have done together uh, with these students, you know. So, uh, and I would say that maybe I can talk about the first uh, PhD student I had uh, who worked on this very exciting project of, uh, uh, so we call it power factor correction, right? Which is really a current shaping circuit. So power electronics, uh, power supplies and so forth draw sinusoidal waveform currents from the grid, um, you know, so so that circuit uh, he he worked on and did his PhD. I don't know if you were the first, never say that you're the first because who knows, somebody else may have been working on it, but uh, we had not seen any papers. Uh, so he got his PhD and now we see that uh, uh, that circuit is used in almost all uh, computer power supplies and other 
power supplies for any power electronics equipment. So that was the first one uh, in the early 80s. Uh, and then uh, the latest one, um, I have a co-PI and a, a couple of PhD students who are working on it. Uh, and uh, so, and we, our university has also filed for a patent on it. Uh, so here we are looking at the control of these uh, IBRs, inverter-based resources. So as you know, if you have wind or solar, you have to have power electronics interface to connect it to the grid. And uh, how should that uh, inverter behave if there's a fault on the system? So let's say you're connected to a 345 kV line and there's a single phase to ground fault. So, you know, if you have synchronous machines, then they have very different, different uh, response, right? They have large fault currents, maybe five or six times the rated current for a short time, but the inverters are restricted to, you know, basically one per unit. So how should they respond in a way that you don't have to change any protection uh, infrastructure, same relays? Uh, can, should be able to protect the transmission line uh, if uh, the inverters behave properly. So that uh, is what uh, we wrote a proposal to NSF and uh, thankfully we were funded and we are still working on it. So we have a lot of hope that uh, if we are able to show that, it'll save uh, millions and millions of dollars to which will otherwise take to change the protection infrastructure relays and so forth and also the downtime. But here, you just have to reprogram the, the inverters in case of faults. So fault detection first, and then responding in, uh, to that uh, by injecting uh, proper currents into the grid by this IBR. So those are the two projects that I can mention, but like I mentioned, I had uh, so many uh, great students and uh, so it's not really what professors do, what students do. <laughs> okay, that's I found out. And, uh, and they are employed in uh, iconic companies. Some are in academia, but uh, so they are doing great. That's I absolutely. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to say, Kristen, that's an incredible feeling. I can, I can, uh, I can hear uh, from Professor Bowman. Yeah, yeah. No, I need. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's just so nice to see. Uh, your students uh, do better than you have done. You know, there's nothing better for an old professor like me to see that uh, my students are at a much higher level than I ever was and will be. Okay, so, you know, that's uh, that's a great feeling. And uh, sometimes uh, we meet and uh, not just the graduate students, but undergraduates, uh, uh, you know, they come up uh, 30 years later and say, hey, professor, I was your student in your class. I enjoyed it. I'm not sure they did or not, but at least uh, they, they're saying that they enjoyed it. <laughs> they make my day. Okay. <laughs> I absolutely love how you are so student centric in the way that you talk about all of the work that you just described. It's it's what I strive for. I, I don't have the students on the other end yet, but it just makes me so excited to see where that could be for me in a couple, you know, if I were in your position in 40 four years from now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good to hear, Krishna. And so, and you know, about this, and the good thing about this is, Christian, that this podcast will be there for the next 46 years. So, oh, yeah. yes, I'll be able to look back and see that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so with that in mind, um, I'd really like to switch over, um, not that you really have to go that far, but to switch over to the educational work that you've done in the great field of power. Uh, you've developed the Consortium of Universities for Sustainable Power, also known as CUSP. Um, you know, if you'd like to tell the link, you can as well. Um, what got you so excited to invest in such a very large project? Well, you know, it, uh, everything starts small. And um, all of it is uh, somewhat uh, serendipity, I would say, that uh, when I was doing uh, research here, uh, <clears throat> of course, I was teaching. So I uh, wrote to NSF, and NSF had a program for, called CCLI at that time. Uh, I forget exactly what it stands for. I should, but I don't. CCLI. And so I got a grant to develop a laboratory for power electronics and electric drives. So we did that and it was very successful and actually 109 US universities actually acquired that uh, uh, those laboratories. And by the way, I had no financial interest. One of the caveat was uh, from NSF to fund us was that it should be commercialized by a third party. So we did that and uh, so that was a great success and then uh, I, you know, I decided to take my notes and turn them into uh, a book. And uh, there again, serendipity, I met Professor Tori Underland from NTNU in Norway. In uh, I think it was a conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, Power Electronics Conference. And uh, so Power Systems was my main field. And uh, so he basically taught me power electronics. And uh, uh, we, you know, met every year almost after that and uh, wrote this book, which uh, Wiley tells me that at one point it was adopted in over 160 universities in the U.S. Whether it's still true, I have no idea. Okay, So, so it's all uh, serendipity. And then we uh, got, uh, again, we got grants from ONR actually this time to develop further courses because uh, ONR thought that we were not graduating enough students in this field with a proper background. So, uh, of course, so they funded us, uh, which is not really the role of ONR, but uh, they funded us pretty royally. So we developed all these courses uh, with the help. Again, you know, I personally didn't uh, make all these courses. I mean, there are 19 graduate level courses uh, on the web if you go, and then uh, there were approximately 30 course developers. So I reached out to, of course, my colleagues here, but uh, all over the country, even uh, outside the country. And uh, so we developed this material and uploaded it. And uh, so I think our intent is to, our commitment is to keep this initiative going. And uh, I will do whatever I can. But after me, I have these two great uh, colleagues uh, and then they will hire a placement anyway. So <laughs> we have our intent and, uh, and we have all these universities uh, involved as well. So this, uh, so what I'm excited is that it is helping a lot of uh, instructors to teach uh, uh, course their courses to their own students using the material from this cusp as they see fit. So it's uh, for educational purposes. There is no restriction. You don't even have to be a member. And uh, but also this knowledge. Uh, is getting outside the United States where uh, it may not be readily available. So we get emails from once in a while from people 
um, you know, showing the appreciation and uh, things like that. So, so this cusp initiative has been phenomenal for us, you know. And uh, these laboratories I mentioned, uh, you know, we are we have a present uh, grant from ONR. We are we are replacing this uh, twenty odd year old laboratories where components are breaking down, and these legacy components cannot be found. We are developing these uh, laboratories to replace them using silicon as well as uh, um, you know GAN devices. So, so we are we are uh, very excited about this cusp. Uh, Definitely, Professor Mohan. I think uh, it's an incredible resource for many many instructors uh, within US, beyond US, and many of the developing countries. I think having this kind of resource of uh, power engineering education all under the same roof, whether we talk about power systems, power electronics, machine drives, like who would have imagined uh, you have a course on there on FEA for machine design. Uh, yeah. These are some of these legacy topics, which we are forgetting, which people are uh, like, uh, either it's becoming obsolete or it's becoming so much dependent on the instructor. We may not even have instructors capable to teach some of these courses in remote areas because they are just not exposed to it. So, something we have to carry forward. So having this kind of a database where someone can readily access and uh, have that resources and everyone can teach their own way, but having that baseline resource out there, I think that's just incredible. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that you're saying that, Arijit. You know, uh, one of the things uh, I would say is that in power, uh, we need to take a holistic view of power because the world is not compartmentalized uh, in uh, uh, power electronics, uh, electric machines and drives and power systems and control. It's all combined. Just look at, uh, as an example, wind turbine, right? You have a generator, you have power electronics, and then you it's connected to power systems, right? So we, we really need to take a holistic view. And uh, so we have developed uh, this CUSP along that line, okay? So there are courses uh, in all these areas, renewables as well. And uh, so I hope uh, with these laboratories and these courses, uh, you know, this CUSP initiative continues, but it needs to keep evolving. As you just said, that things uh, become obsolete at one point, although the fundamentals will always stay there, but, uh, you know, uh, their applications, how they are being applied and uh, using the type of devices they employ would change. So, you know, this, uh, this has to keep evolving in some sense, and uh, uh, time will tell if you're able to do that, you know, so. Yeah, totally. And I, I also agree completely with you about the approach you are talking about, that holistic view of a system rather than components. Because I, I feel like as we are doing research more and more on different levels, uh, it might be even challenging and harder to do innovation at the component level any further. It might be challenging, but the innovation may lie at the boundaries of these different uh, so-called compartments of machines, polytronics, systems, power systems, and so on. So that's why, again, uh, I totally echo with you on this, that uh, having that holistic view will give us more ideas to innovate and make the world a better place to live in. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. I think, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, something which, uh, not only me, but a lot of other, uh, you know, I would say my mentors uh, mentioned to me early on. Uh, so I followed that approach and, uh, you know, funding agencies like uh, NSF and uh, 
ONR uh, agreed with this approach. So we are very thankful to them and thankful to all the you know 30 odd developers who have developed this material for CUSP. That is is so excellent, and it seems like it has such a large impact to all over the world. Um, I just want to go ahead and right before we we transition subjects here a little bit. Uh, and if anybody wants the link, it's cusp cusp.umn.edu slash courses. Um, I'm sure we can get a link added to the description of the podcast. Um, but in case you're in case you're not familiar with cusp as a whole, they do have a website where you can obviously go see all of this, uh, the courses that have been developed. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. So transitioning as a side note, uh, well, no, not really much of a transition. Uh, you've been a pioneer in power education. Uh, my very first power electronics course actually used your textbook. Um, so if you could please share some of your perspectives on the pedagogy specific to power electronics, machines and drives um, that are critical to keep this field exciting and inspiring the next generation of electrical engineers in power. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you for your support for uh, buying those books, uh, at least in power electronics. <laughs> right. I still have um, it right here next to me. <laughs> so, uh, so my, uh, you know, I already talked about uh, uh, this holistic approach, uh, but the other thing we, we need to think about is, uh, uh, you know, when you talk about this holistic approach, uh, we should be very careful about what we teach, but uh, more importantly, what we do not teach. Okay, we should not be teaching topics, in my opinion, uh, one may disagree. Uh, they are basically legacy topics and uh, they take up uh, course time, uh, you know, so we should be concentrating on what uh, uh, students uh, after graduating would use and uh, maybe in the future. So we are preparing students for not yesterday, for uh, today and uh, tomorrow, so to speak, right? So that's uh, one thing I would say about uh, the material that we need to have. But when it comes to pedagogy, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I have a, I'm a big proponent of uh, so-called flipped classroom teaching with some uh, reservations. Okay, so let me describe that actually, uh, I was very fortunate with my two uh, colleagues, uh, at the, you know, one at uh, here and one at uh, University of Northern Arizona uh, to get a grant from NSF to look at uh, this flipped classroom pedagogy, which is telling us is that, uh, you know, uh, if you use that where the dissemination of information happens outside the classroom and assimilation of that information happens inside the classroom, and uh, that way students uh, retain that knowledge uh, longer. Okay, so, so I have been using that approach because with all the video clips that we have developed, uh, we assign those for students to look at them and do some pre-class assignments uh, before they come to class. And then in class, we can then do problem solving, right? So, you know, it's also very comfortable for uh, the instructor. So, you know, you of course have to take time to develop these videos. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you use the class time to do problem solving with the help of students. So that is, uh, you know, very good approach in my opinion, but uh, 
The reservation I have is that if students, uh, some students don't watch those uh, uh, videos which are uh, assigned before they come to the class, uh, even though you have made certain quizzes based on that and they just arbitrarily answer it. And uh, so they, they can miss out uh, quite a bit, but that can happen in uh, uh, you know regular conventional classroom teaching too. So, you know, there's no uh, solution to, to that problem as such. But, but this uh, flipped classroom teaching in terms of pedagogy, I think, is something worth uh, looking at and seeing if uh, it uh, is useful in your uh, circumstances, so to speak. You know, so, so that's my two cents for pedagogy. That that's very valuable uh, suggestion from Zamoni. I have a particular follow up question on this flipped classroom, and I have given it a lot of thought myself of how to include in my class. And it seems it's a lot of work. First of all, to have those videos, and again, class has already produced these videos to have those pre lecture content, which can be circulated and can be given to students up front and then we uh, do the assimilation in the class as you were saying so i i think that's a very valuable approach and it has a, it's interesting pieces one of the biggest challenge i have found myself i have never tried it myself maybe i'll prove, be proved wrong there is as you were saying that students how do you ensure that students get along with those online videos given the age we are in it's very easy to get distracted when we are in front of a computer or we are like there are plenty of videos which are probably more interesting than my probably five minutes video on a buck converter or something else so how how do we engage the students in this flipped classroom better is there is there a suggestion or advice you have well, uh, for those group of students who are who are kind of trying to we can or who can miss out on this flipped classroom yeah yeah no i think uh Harajit, you you raise a very valid point and that was my reservation about this approach but uh, so the only thing we can do uh, if you want to stay with flipped classroom is to design uh, quizzes that uh, you know after watching a certain segment uh, they have to answer and uh, those are recorded you know you can uh, whatever classroom lear learning management system you're using canvas or whatever uh, you know they are recorded and then it allows them to go on so you know there's a lot of work you know there's a lot of uh, instructional design comes in here as well and, um, and not only that a lot of instructors uh, sweat and tears so to speak to to develop these videos then that, that can be used right but i think if they, they can be done right it will take a lot of time but uh, once you have done it uh, then you are set for a few years anyway okay so that, then it will save you a great deal of time you know so so that's uh, and uh, so that, that's uh, you know i i have developed these videos for uh, for cusp but uh, they could be very, you know, they could be much better structured. Uh, you know, instead of a half an hour video, they could be five or 10 minutes long pieces. And after every piece, there's a quiz. And then the system doesn't allow them to move on until they answer that. Okay, And those quizzes could be quite simple because they haven't had that discussion in the classroom yet, right? But at least ensures that they have watched it, you know, so. 
Right. So another follow-up question on this one, because there is another style which I have seen people where uh, the instructors use, we call it Socratic style, where we keep asking questions, we keep probing uh, students about questions. Is that feasible to blend with this uh, uh, flipped classroom structure by any chance where uh, we still have that curiosity coming out from students and we basically tinker that and say, hey, okay, what do you think now we can do? Yeah, no, those, those are some of the challenges. But, you know, when we have, uh, after the flipped classroom where they have, I mean, in this flipped classroom approach, after they have watched the, they done their pre-class assignment, uh, they can come up with their questions uh, to the class, right? And then uh, in class, we can answer those questions first, and then we can uh, start solving problems and uh, discussing things. So I think uh, even uh, if somebody has the, the resources, uh, not in terms of time, basically, uh, I think it could be made, uh, at least uh, in my opinion, can be made a lot more useful than uh, what I'm using at the present, you know, but um, I don't know, think, I don't think I have the stamina to break them up into pieces and <laughs> you know, put excuses at the, uh, in between. And the quizzes afterwards, but not in between. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think yeah, again, it's a very valuable path, and it's an alternative path where, and it can be a blending, blended version of both. So yeah, thanks so much for giving your thoughts on this flipped classroom. Sure. Moving on. Um, let's see here. So we love to ask this question to everyone who's been on the podcast so far, and it is. Uh, that we've seen the emergence and exponential growth of the IEEE Power Electronics Society. Um, how has the society specifically helped you in your professional career? Well, Kristen, that's a, <clears throat> a pretty straightforward question uh, because it has been tremendously beneficial. You know, I think uh, <clears throat> I may be wrong here, but Professor John Kasekian from MIT, and maybe Arjit, you may know, he was the founding uh, president of uh, Power Electronic Society. So he has been my mentor, uh, you know, all through my career, you know, every promotion I had gotten, uh, uh, he was uh, partly responsible for that. And uh, so I, I presented papers there, and as you know, in academia, it's uh, publish or perish, right? So, and then uh, it allowed me to present uh, several tutorials. So I presented, you know, close to 26 uh, conference tutorials, not all IEEE and not all IEEE Power Electronics, but uh, so it has been extremely useful for me uh, in my professional life, so to speak, you know, so, and, uh, and my students' lives, so to speak. And to tell that to our uh, audience again, we, I know many of your students from Zamon and uh, I'm, we are really grateful to have these kind of uh, generations of students you, are create, you have created and you are still creating. So uh, they are just fantastic colleagues of mine. They are friends of mine. Uh, so this is one of my most favorite questions, if you will. Uh, what advice would you like to give someone who is starting his or her career in power electronics? Well, I would say that, um, first of all, uh, power electronics is an area which will be absolutely essential to integrate all these renewables 
that we are thinking about and storage, right? So, and then uh, not to forget uh, electric vehicles. What are electric vehicles? Just uh, a machine and drives and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, a lot of power electronics there as well. And so research uh, should continue in that and uh, development would continue in that. So I'm sure there's a lot of job opportunities. Uh, but ultimately, I would say that, and I tell that to my students, that follow your heart. You know, whether it's you're going to, thinking of going to academia, uh, going to work for some industry or to nonprofit, uh, follow your heart because uh, sounds pretty philosophical, but, uh, you know, the, the, the foundation here is that uh, you have the skills uh, that uh, you will be able to earn enough money to put food on the table and uh, shelter over your head. And, uh, but you know, you, you ought to find it challenging and exciting. And, uh, you know, so follow that. And uh, nothing, you know, once you decide to go one way, it doesn't mean that uh, one has to stay there. You know, if you go into academia, we know a lot of people who, you know, switch to industries, they start their own companies and it goes the other way as well. And, you know, a lot of people change uh, one employer to the next. So, you know, it's basically what uh, you find uh, most exciting because I think uh, underlying it all, uh, they, they will be able to earn enough to, um, you know, properly sustain themselves. So that's uh, my message to them. And then whatever they do, what they do, <laughs> no control over that, but I am always available to, to listen. Thank you so much. Professor Mohan for this advice and most importantly for your time today. It was really a great honor to have you on our podcast today and hear about your experiences, your advices and uh, life stories. So thank you so much. And I would also like to thank Kristen uh, for, for her time and Megan. Yeah, likewise, likewise, before we close, uh, I'd like to thank both uh, you, Arjit and Kristen uh, for these uh, excellent questions and also Megan to facilitate uh, all this. And uh, the, my parting thought is that uh, let's not forget about distance education because in, like in this pandemic that we have, uh, if we can make uh, these laboratories even uh, you know, accessible remotely, then we can, uh, you know, under, under situations like this and perhaps for students who cannot come to campus for whatever reason, uh, we can make them uh, remotely accessible. So the new laboratories that we are developing will all be remotely accessible. So when pandemic in March of last year, uh, there was no interruption. We were teaching electric machines and drives, and they were able to, uh, you know, uh, continue uh, from their home. Okay. So, so I again thank you very much for giving me this time. I like to talk too much, but uh, <laughs> I hope it was okay. It was absolutely excellent. Thank you so much, Ned. And as we, you know, once again, we can't help but thank Megan, who is behind the scenes helping us with all of the logistics. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, for all of our listeners, it's our aim at the Digital Media and Education Committee to bring you more of these podcasts that are hopefully inspirational and informative. 
and ideally useful for you. Um, we have all of these podcasts that are available on our IEEE Pels website, and you can also find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Podcast, and Spotify. Um, so please stay tuned for more. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much.